Hello and welcome to the ICE Tech Talks podcast, part of uh, the ICE's all-new CPD program. I'm Mark Hansford, Director of Engineering Knowledge here at ICE, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to this episode of the Tech Talks podcast. Today, we're going to delve into dispute avoidance, what engineers can do to avoid costly and lengthy disputes on projects, and explore the techniques being used across the industry today. To help with that, we have two brilliant guests with us today. We have Martin Burns, Head of um, Alternative Dispute Resolution, Research and Development at uh, the Royal Institution Chartered Surveyors, and Emily Monastriotis, uh, Head of Dispute Resolution at law firm Simmons & Simmons. Um, welcome, Martin. Thank you, Mark. And, uh, and welcome, Emily. Hi, good to meet you all. Wonderful. So, so look, um, let's let's kick off, Martin. Um, by by perhaps just share with us your kind of perspective on on the state of the dispute resolution market. I mean, we've been through a pretty brutal two years as a as a as a country as as a, as a world with uh, the coronavirus pandemic, and we have, of course, just emerged from Brexit as before we went into it. You know, is is that building up to a kind of a, a serious amount of dispute activity? What's the state of the market? What are you sensing? I, I think the simple answer to that is yes, but you, you have to look at the, the history of the construction industry is one that has a tradition of disputes. You know, it, It's been described over and over again as an industry that has real problems with disputes, costs, overruns as a result of, the car, of disputes, and additional costs that parties have to pay simply because of the amount of disputes that happen on construction projects. So it has a history. But the answer to your question is, has there anything changed in the last 20 months? Well, certainly from our perspective at RSCS, we're seeing, yes, there is. And uh, in, in my particular role at RSCS, I'm talking constantly to government officials, industry people, and there's this sense that a whole range of factors, Brexit, COVID, increasing prices, uh, shortage of materials and labour, uh, a whole range of factors are coming together to create a little bit of a, a storm, if you like, a, a storm which is possibly going to lead to more and more disputes. And the reason why I'm talking to these government officials is they want to know, for example, how many adjudicators have been appointed by RSCS, because that's almost like a barometer of what's happening. The more adjudications that are happening, that means there's more disputes. And certainly what we saw when uh, lockdown first came about in March 2020 was an immediate 40, 50% increase in numbers of adjudicators wow. appointed by RSCS. So we're, we're moving from 80 adjudicators a month to 125, 130, something like that per month through you know to the back end of 2020. And then it started to drop off a little. Right. But what we've seen uh, since maybe uh, September, October, is it started to pick up again. Okay. And what's driving that latest uptick then? The answer is we don't know. I, I think it has to be some of those factors that I mentioned, you know, the Brexit factor, uh, organisations getting back to work. Possibly the, the, um, the logistics and the supply issues. You know, uh, it's very difficult for people to price contracts now. Um, but we're also seeing a lot of different types of issues that are coming into uh, uh, disputes that haven't previously been at the heart of disputes, issues around uh, force majeure, um, 
supply and delivery issues, shortage of labour and materials, uh, dramatic increases in costs, and all of that might be at the heart of what's driving these disputes. Yeah, I can certainly can imagine the the well documented um, materials shortages, which are affecting all industries, aren't they? And clearly are affecting our industry quite significantly. Will be a major factor. Um, Emily, is, is are some of these um, effects beginning to sort of demonstrate themselves and with with yourselves and and, and your firm? Yeah, absolutely. Um, obviously, as a kind of construction um, disputes lawyer, I, f- I feel that I owe, I owe my career on uh, the fact that there, there is a tradition of disputes uh, in the industry. But absolutely, the picture that we're seeing is very, very consistent with what, with what has just been described. Uh, disputes are up. There was a bit of a lull, um, but definitely since September, I'd say we're seeing a significant increase in adjudications, um, and cases. Obviously, the difficulty that you have, it's very difficult to kind of talk about statistics, isn't it? Because a lot of issues get resolved either by adjudication. So the best barometer is looking at the, the number of uh, adjudicators that are being appointed that you hear from from time to time. I was also kind of um, in preparation for this question, looking at the TCC's annual report, that the latest version runs from the 1st of October 2019 to the 30th of September 2020. And what was interesting in that is that the total number of claims was 605, but only 13 of those actually dealt with what I'd call broadly engineering issues. So a relatively small proportion, I'd say, from slightly more up-to-date pictures. Since the 1st of January, there's been four cases in the TCC in which the term civil engineer is effectively referenced in the judgment. But obviously, that only captures cases where there was a full hearing or trial. And we all know, don't we, that there isn't much appetite generally to litigate cases um, all the way. Yeah. And and, and absolutely, that's why the the number of cases um, going to adjudication is is such an important metric because clearly people would prefer to seek resolution at, a, at that early stage before getting getting the full legal activity involved. But what I would say is that those adjudications are generally on more simple, straightforward matters. And the issue that you have on engineering matters, they're often very, very complicated and not really suitable for adjudication. Many people have heard me talk before about this topic. I have a really big um, bugbear about whether or not adjudication is really fit for purpose anymore. And are we really using it in, in the way that was intended? So what would be really interesting is working out how many adjudications really exist within the kind of concerning kind of engineering issues because I imagine that the figure ought to be relatively low. So if um, adjudication is potentially not the right and right approach, what, what is the right approach? Well, the issue that you have is adjudication, of course, can be the right approach for the right dispute. But when you have kind of complex professional negligence claims, my view is that it's very difficult to do justice to such a dispute in 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 the adjudicate in a traditional adjudication forum. Because what typically ends up happening is you have some sort of quasi arbitration. So you have a very elongated adjudication and which bears kind of no resemblance to, to the timeframes usually you'd be operating on 
in adjudication. So it does require flexibility for the parties. And I'm not saying that's a bad way of resolving it. But the issue that you have is you kind of, you lose, the whole point of adjudication was to kind of aid cash flow, wasn't it, in the industry. And it is now being used in a much, much broader way. So as long as there's kind of flexibility between the parties and collaboration, which I, I know is slightly ironic when you're talking about disputes, then of course they, they can be resolved in a way that is cost effective, because that's what it's about. It's about being able to resolve disputes in a cost effective manner. But a traditional kind of 28-day um, adjudication is just not the way forward when it comes to complex engineering um, issues, in, in my humble opinion. Yeah. Well, 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 Martin, sort of follow up on that. I mean, I'm interested in your take on, on, the, on the role of adjudication generally. And I suppose, is there a, so I, is there a real onus on, on a stage before that? You know, you know, can we get more, as civil engineers, can we do more to stop things even getting to an adjudication stage? Well, RSS and the ICE and other organisations are certainly working in that direction. But if I, I could just um, make some comments in, in relation to what Emily has said about adjudication and its increasing complexity, I absolutely agree with her and I've seen it. And RSS is appointing something like 1,500 adjudicators a, a year and many of those adjudications are not really traditional adjudication. They're, they're, they're complex. They're, they, they last far longer than the 28 days that was envisaged. They involve um, lawyers, expert witnesses. It's almost like arbitration light or even proper arbitration in some respects. Um, what we have, though, seen is through the Construction Industry Council, the introduction, and indeed TEXA, of schemes, low-value adjudication, which comply with the Construction Act, so they're proper adjudication, but they're aimed at simplifying the process so that SMEs and those involved in smaller disputes can actually go back to what adjudication should have been in the first place or what it was intended to be. And this is starting to be picked up. And we've seen in the last uh, 18 months, some, somewhere in the region of 200 of these adjudications on the low value schemes being picked up by RSCS. And I know from talking to people within ICE that there, there are cases coming through the ICE dispute resolution service as well. But going back to your original question about around should there be a step before adjudication, well, that, that is something that is really being explored and scoped by organisations like the ICE and the RSS working together. Um, some three or four years ago, um, I got talking to um, my counterpart, if you like, at the ICE, Brenda Van Royen, and we were talking about this appetite that we were starting to see for early intervention, you know, conflict avoidance, but people being people, they will fall out, having some inter early intervention mechanisms that uh, could be put in place, if you like, to stop cases which didn't really need to go to adjudication, could be nipped in the bud. And uh, from that conversation, we realised that what we wanted to do is have a campaign where we could influence government and industry decision makers about policy, about promoting this whole idea of a much more collaborative environment in the in the construction industry it's a culture change yeah very ambitious uh, and bearing in mind the history and tradition of the construction industry um some people might say it, it was impossible but we're starting to see some movement and that initial coalition between rss and the ice has now brought in the charter institute of arbitrators the international chambers of commerce uh reba uh, and indeed some industry organizations like transport for london and network rail who have started to work in a coalition and have developed the conflict avoidance pledge. 
Uh, and this is something I mentioned earlier in a, an, an IC webinar today, which is how that pledge has really been picked up by government. It's been promoted in cabinet office guidance. It's been promoted in the construction playbook. It's been promoted by the Welsh government in its uh, post-COVID recovery plan. And so what we're seeing now is absolutely an increasing appetite for at least the notion and the concept of dealing with disputes much earlier and much more amicably and more cost-effectively. Still a lot of work to be done there. So how would a, a, a typical practising civil engineer get involved and understand more of a conflict avoidance pledge? Uh, well, a website, I think, is the easiest place Good to start. go to. Yes. Um, RSS, as part of the coalition, has agreed to host the, uh, the signatories to the website. There's a, over 300 signatories so far, right. and some of them are, are major, major construction project um, employers. And, and indeed, there are also SMEs that have signed up to it. Uh, I suppose I better give you the, the website is uh, rss.org forward slash cap pledge, C-A-P-L-E-D-G-E. And that will give you a sense of what the pledge is about, what the pledge is. You know, it's just four simple lines that uh, commit an organisation to proactively avoid, if they can, conflict, but also manage it better without necessarily having disputes escalate to adversarial procedures like adjudication or arbitration if that's not necessary. Well, that sounds very encouraging. And it sounds, certainly sounds encouraging that some major clients are signing up because in, in, in all of this, I guess clients play such a key role in, in determining the, the culture of the, of the project that they wish to, um, wish, to, wish to run. Absolutely. But we're not just focusing at top-down approach. We're also looking at right across the supply chain and getting organisations, uh, businesses, tier two, tier three contractors involved in developing uh, mechanisms within the contractual matrices that will allow them to, if you like, nip disputes in the bud. Um, and there have been processes like the conflict avoidance process. Uh, Network Rail introduced a, a, a dispute avoidance panel or dispute avoidance process that's been built into a lot of its project work, which is mainly about horizon scanning. It's about looking to the future to see where in this project is the weak points that could end up in disputes. But of course, that's a net that could things could easily slip through. So they're also looking at what happens then um, that will avoid these disputes ending up in adversarial, long, costly adversarial processes. Okay. Well, that Sounds like a very positive step forward. I guess initiatives like that really will hopefully help and will reduce the, the number of um, disputes, conflicts that are that are in play at any one time. But but I but I guess any given civil engineer at any time could find themselves um, in, embroiled in some sort of um, dispute procedure process. So uh, let's start perhaps start with you, Emily. I mean, how can you know, in your sort of professional view and your expert view on this, how, you know, when when you see a, a, a typical dispute coming your in your direction, you know, what what's your kind of always your kind of first thought on how uh, how it's got there? Do do you have thoughts around uh, classic? Why did they not do dot dot dot? You know, what whatever kind of the, the sort of the, the kind of the classic things you see coming your direction where where if a civil engineer had just handled the situation or their project better or differently, it could have perhaps nipped the whole thing in the bud. Yeah, I mean, obviously, if you break it down in terms of the various phases that you find in a project, 
you get very different outcomes. So if you take, for example, kind of pre-design, quite often you see that um, there just isn't, there hasn't been kind of effective risk management plan um, during the pre-design phase or engineers not really um, grasping, and I have to say this is relatively rare, but not really grasping exactly what it is that they're supposed to be designing. But also, obviously, I I've made a career out of people's mistakes because obviously professional negligence <laughs> claims are, are, are rife in the industry. And that's the whole reason why um, civil engineers must make sure that they've got an adequate PI cover because at least you've got, you've got that yeah. fallback position. But quite often the, the mistakes and the errors that you've seen could have been picked up yeah. had there been a, a thorough review of design. So making sure that engineers work in, in an environment whereby their work is peer-reviewed um, and quite often because obviously the, the other issue that you have when you look at disputes and this is difficult to get away from is we look at everything with the benefit of hindsight and the benefit of hindsight is is great but again kind of just making sure you go back put yourself back in into the shoes of um, someone looking at how that issue could have been avoided quite often it's a it's a relatively it would have been a relatively straightforward fix around um preview one of the joys actually of acting for engineers is that they are far better than other professionals if i can put it like that and um hopefully the raba are not listening in <laughs> into this uh, kind of keeping documents right um, and document management so quite often when we get briefing notes from engineers they are brilliant they're really good very methodical but obviously there are exceptions so making sure that you've got a really good clear paper trail is absolutely essential although as i say often although not always our experience is that engineers are particularly good at um keeping appropriate document for for kind of all phases so they're really kind of my my top tips keep going on the document front it always helps the lawyers excellent well it's reassuring to hear that we are good at uh, at note keeping that's good news um martin and, and you know any any further top tips you would add to that yeah, the first thing, having worked for RSS for the last 32 years, I think from what Emily has said, there's a lot that could be learned by surveyors from uh, engineers in terms of keeping good notes. Um, one of the things I often say uh, in, about disputes is that dispute resolution happens too late. You know, and, and very often parties never think about disputes until they're already very much engaged in a dispute and they have to go to Emily or others and uh, try and get them resolved. I was listening to Mrs. Justice Jefford today, the TCC judge, who was um, talking about things that were close to my heart in terms of what people can do to uh, manage and avoid disputes better. And one of the things they need to be doing is thinking about it a lot earlier. You know, as part of their risk analysis when they're, they're putting the contracts together, you know, and far too often people have the wrong contract. You know, they just pick something up and signed it. And the only time they look at it is when a dispute has arisen and they look to the contract and it doesn't help. You know, if they, they need to be looking at uh, making sure that they're, the contractual arrangements they have are correct for the job and the people that are doing the job. Mrs. Justice Jefford also talked about optimism bias. And that was the first time actually I'd heard that name. But I really understand what it means. You know, that people think it'll never happen to me. It's not going to be the case. Everything's going to be positive and rosy. Well, if that was the case, then Emily and I wouldn't be doing the jobs that we're doing and wouldn't be having the careers that we have in terms of uh, disputes. I think 
the advice, and I, again, I'm, I'm citing Mrs. Justice Jefford. Um, hopefully she's not listening to this and saying I'm, I'm plagiarizing, but she was saying prepare for disputes to avoid disputes. So you prepare for a dispute so that you can avoid a dispute. And I think that's wise counsel indeed, and that's something that a lot of parties need to be thinking about and, and doing them much uh, earlier than they, they have been in the past. Do you get a, a sense that, because that sounds eminently good design, um, um, eminently sensible approach, but with, you know, often happens in, I'm sure it happens in other sectors too, but it often happens in our sector that, you know, it's so difficult to get projects over the line, you know, particularly publicly funded projects, you know, it's difficult to get approval, it's difficult to get the money. When you do get the the green lights to go on a project, there is such a rush to to almost start before the money gets withdrawn that you know you, you see this playing out in you know in 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 starting work before you know designs are finished. So you end up with sort of situations where it's harder to actually get to get the project finished at, at the end. Does does that sort of play into this kind of lack of preparedness? I suppose you know for what could could go wrong do we do we sort of crash in too quickly and, and not spend enough time thinking about the what ifs i think that's precisely what i was saying that um more time needs to be taken early on to you know to really make sure you've got the right contract you've got everything in place uh, and then it's the right um you've got the right people on board you've got the right time scales it all needs to be done beforehand and, then, and i can see what you talk about the reality you know real life dynamics and that, that, that that's the challenge there's also real life dynamics in the sense of uh, the tendering and procurement you know and it's been described to me by someone at transport for london once as a race to the bottom you know i think that needs to come into the factor as well that you need to make sure that in that procurement you're getting the right people on board rather than the people who are just saying well we'll charge less than everybody else and then once the contract's up and running uh, the fight tooth and nail for for more money yeah absolutely can I just also just just pick up on, on on a point if that's okay that Martin made in relation to the contract having a contract in place I think for me that's one of the single biggest failures that we see on all disputes for all industries is either not having a contract in place at all or not having the contract in place that you thought you had you'd be surprised how many clients come to say well that's not in my that's not in my scope of services and you go and that's not the type of work we ever do and then you point them to a really clear clause in their scope of services that says precisely what they say they weren't there to do and that for me is a really key thing for anyone in the industry really to be focusing on is making sure you've got a really clear contract in place that's been properly executed and in relation to which you retained a copy that always helps. <laughs> well, I, I can see Martin nodding along vigorously to that. And I mean, I, I remember a, a few years ago, there were a, um, a spate of quite high profile projects which got into sort of contractual dispute because it, it, it emerged that they'd been, you know, working in these sort of several hundred million pound contracts, I seem to recall, where they, they were working to just letters of intent as opposed to fully fledged contracts is that still happening then are people still finding themselves deeply into projects but still working to a letter of intent 
Yeah, or the issue that you often have is people are thinking that they're working to a contract. And I've had a case really recently where the client was absolutely convinced that the contract had been properly executed and it had not. And often what you find is there's a breakdown in communication within the client between the kind of the legal team or the team that's actually responsible for for finalising and executing that contract and the team delivering that project. Right. And genuinely, I am shocked by the number of times that you have professionals working on projects and they haven't had sight of the contract. That's really interesting. I mean, I mean, Martin, from a, you know, from a practical point of view, then if, 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 if again, if, if, if you or I were a, a practicing civil engineer, how, how would we know? What's the question we should be asking to make sure that we, we know we're working to a natural contract here? Well, I certainly think you employ someone like Emily much earlier and get, make sure that the contractual arrangements you've come to are, are right for the job. Uh, just following on, in fact, from what Emily said, uh, a lot of the adjudications that come through RSS and the issues around what is the contract? Is there a contract? What does the contract say? Um, at the heart of disputes is always money, of course, but it, it just goes to, I think, um, evidence precisely what um, Emily was talking about that you know people are thinking about it too late in the day you know they need to have a contract signed contract in the drawer and often they don't and often they don't have the right contract if they've got one and nobody's gone through it and had a, a proper look and said yes this is the right contract for you the kind of conflict avoidance um mechanisms that RSS and ICE are pushing as part of the coalition group that I mentioned earlier um, are referenced in a, a toolkit that we've developed. And again, that website I referred mm. to earlier, yeah, uh, it gives you access to the toolkit. Now, the toolkit is a, a top-level piece of information. It's not any great detail, but what it does is almost like a walk through a project from you know the early stages right through to almost completion and the sort of things that people need to be thinking about in order to avoid conflict and then in order to manage it and right at the beginning it is emphasizing the contractual arrangements they need to be right and they need to be sorted and they need to be looked at and make sure you've got it properly signed off well that sounds great is, and is that toolkit applicable to all projects big and small yes as i say it's, it's it doesn't go into many massive detail it's it's very top level information and it's signposts also uh, and it, people to where they can go for further information, you know, so if uh, you want information about the NEC forms, precisely where you can go here. Uh, if you want more information about um, something like early neutral evaluation, which is something that can come into play rather than go down the adjudication route or the, the litigation route, and it gives you a sense of what that's about, when it can come into play, what the benefits are, when you might not want to use it, those sorts of things. Great. And we talk about issues with well, the issue of not having a contract at all. One of the other issues, which I guess we, we can't not talk about, is the, um, in recent years, the, the proliferation of Z clauses, which are creeping their way into contracts. Is that just an inevitability we have to deal with, or is there something we can do about that? Martin? Um I'm not sure. I'd like to pass that one to Emily and hear what she has to say first. Excellent. I like that. Emily. 
Yeah, and the thing is, particularly standard form contracts and those who produce them always say um, shouldn't be amending them because litigation arises more out of amendments than standard form contracts. The other thing I would say is, obviously, I only ever see things that go wrong. Um, and quite often they say, I don't see, I don't see projects, unfortunately, that go right. So I only ever see contracts that go wrong. And again, a lot of our work is looking at contracts and trying to actually properly interpret them. And the issue that you have, of course, is that when you start having a amendments they can mean different things to different people when you actually read the amendments you and I can read the same sentence in in different ways so again kind of avoiding amendments to contracts of course is a better approach but I just don't think it's practical because you need to have a contract that's suitably adapted to your specific project. I did also kind of want to flag that there has been kind of a recent case um, concerning um, an engineering firm um, that's gone through the TCC's um, multiplex and Bathgate, where significant problems were created in the litigation um, because the contract terms couldn't be evident. So again, there is, there is very recent case law, but that was kind of a, around the fact that the contract couldn't be identified properly anyway. But coming back to your original question around contract amendments, you do have to get them right because they can lead to problems. Just to add to that, a, a little anecdote. I, I remember going along to one of the major infrastructure uh, employers um, to talk about the inclusion of a conflict avoidance early intervention clause into a, a contract. They wanted to to add it, and what they gave me was the uh, the exchange of contracts that had been done so far with their their amendments, and there was more red ink than there was black. Uh, and I, it just occurred to me then that what's the point? Yeah. And that and that seems to be. I mean, it just from what what you, what you hear that it just is the nature of of the industry now, isn't it? You know, you look at any you know major major contract, and there is almost you say more 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 red than there is black on the contract. And and I, so what's the what's the you know what's the lesson there to a, to an engineer who's having to deal with that that contract? I mean, you can't really. I guess it's difficult to challenge back on on the. The client or whichever organisation is has introduced all those those variations. So, is it just take care to understand what you're signing up to? Is it is it that simple? I think there's, from a legal perspective, there are two issues. One, are there any red flags which will cause you issue? your PI cover. Really good example, a typical example of that is, is there something that, because um, obviously PI covers negligence, it doesn't cover absolute obligations. So is there anything in the contract that makes your services subject to an absolute obligation rather than reasonable skill and care, in which case you have to push back because you won't have PI cover for that. So looking for those really big red flags is key. But secondly is understanding what it is you're actually signing up to and what your appetite for any potential risk is. Because quite often you can de-risk contracts, you can either pass down liability to subcontractors, but it's just really understanding your contract and the consequences it has and making sure it hasn't got any really clear red flags that you mustn't be accepting. Give me an example of a such a red flag then. Red, red flag is when you've got unlimited um where there's no cap on liability for example again that may be commercially you may be able to, to take that on the chin but 
The issue that you have, particularly with engineering disputes, is they are often very high value. So contrast that with kind of architects' claims, you get a lot more attritional claims, smaller claims, a design issue that was picked up fairly early on. Generally, engineering matters are much bigger, much more complex. So therefore, having a cap on liability that matches your PI cover I think is key because otherwise it leads to to sleepless nights. Again, words that you import greater obligations than reasonable skill and care. And there's cases that's gone all the way up um, to the Supreme Court around was a contract, was um, a part of performance subject to reasonable skill and care or was it uh, subject to an absolute obligation where it went to first instance that found it was an absolute obligation and the court of appeal overturned it and said no no it's reasonable skill and care and then the supreme court said no no it's actually an absolute obligation so learned judges uh, disagree then that to me shows how ambiguous that contract actually was well that's that's a sobering thought isn't it that you could go that that far it it also highlights the challenge that the engineer that you describe has in terms of what the engineer do in terms of uh, dealing with those issues uh, from the perspective of what we're doing with the coalition it's very much about changing the macro environment rather than focusing on the individual um, and it's going to take time but it's it's about encouraging less uh, focus on changing contracts beyond recognition and just working with what you've got and making sure it's the right contract for the right job in, in terms of the individual, it, it's you can just imagine just how difficult it's going to be for the individual to question and to propose fundamental changes to a contract during that sort of negotiation period. Absolutely. No, thank you very much, Martin. Um, Emily, then um, final final word to you, perhaps. Um, what's um, if you were able to offer? One parting shot, one one crucial piece of advice to uh, to the civil engineering profession in terms of uh, avoiding disputes. What would be your top tip? Make sure you build a very good relationship with clients as well. What you often see is that disputes get so much worse and don't get resolved early when there's a total breakdown of communication between parties. And that's why actually it is really good that lots of standard form contracts have kind of dispute avoidance and escalation procedures in them um, because communication really is key to resolving because disputes will happen. That is the reality of the industry. It's about being able to resolve them quickly without incurring significant legal costs that then become a bar to settlement. So continue to communicate with your clients, even if you don't really like them. (laughs) Thank you, Emily. And Martin, final thought from yourself? It it almost follows on from what Emily has said. It's the heart of every dispute that I've seen is an information issue. You know, information, a, a party has taken up a position based on what they know or what they think they know. Uh, and what's happened is there's been a lack of communication between parties and therefore a lack of information on one side or the other. And so this communication thing, I, I think, is hugely important. Openness and transparency and more communication so that people know precisely uh, what the the arrangements are, what their obligations are. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like a, a, an ambition that's almost out of reach is to get everybody in a situation where they do communicate and they don't just jam up and, and don't talk to each other. Yeah, no. 
thank thank you thank you martin and thank you emily and and thanks to you all for listening you can find more about this topic and um find more podcasts videos and other resources relating to ICE's knowledge program on the ICE knowledge hub which you can access via our website ice.org.uk new content will be launched uh, throughout the year uh, on most Thursdays so please do uh, keep a lookout for new content this has been the ICE Tech Talks podcast and I've been Mark Hansford we hope you can join us again soon but until then goodbye